On the back of your bulletin, you will find the catechism questions of the Lord's Day. Well, you don't have them. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't fit the pattern. When you're up here, you get used to a pattern. If the pattern doesn't work, uh, thinking on the spur of the moment is not my strong point. Uh, I will read the catechism question. I will read the answer. I will endeavor to read it slowly as we would read it back to one another. What benefit do we receive from the resurrection of Christ? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, that he might make us partakers of the righteousness which he has obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we are now raised up to a new life. Third, the resurrection of Christ is to us a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. 46. What do you understand by the words, he ascended into heaven? That Christ, in the sight of his disciples, was taken up from the earth into heaven and continues there on our behalf until he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. But is not Christ with us even to the end of the world as he promised? Christ is true man and true God. According to his human nature, he is now not on earth. But according to his Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is at no time absent from us. But are not in this way the two natures of Christ separated from one another? If the manhood is not wherever the Godhead is? Not at all. For since the Godhead is incomprehensible and everywhere present, it must follow that the same is not limited with the human nature, which he assumed, and yet remains personally united to it. Those questions. If we can go back to the first one, question 45. What benefits do we receive from the resurrection of Christ? In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 and 55, So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass that saying which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Paul's comment about the nature of what happened at the resurrection and the resurrection of Christ, of course, was that it promises a resurrection for us. And it promises that resurrection to be applied to us. So, this I say, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. It's a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when that happens, we are with Christ. And the nature of death is undone. Now you've heard me say it, and I want to say it perhaps too often, but I want you to remember it, please. There are three aspects of death. Death is a separation by its nature. So God had separated, well, 
first he separated Adam and Eve. When he said, when you eat this fruit, your death will be certain, the separation will begin. Adam and Eve tried to hide themselves from each other. Okay, so fig leaves wasn't a good idea, but they tried. Then you will be separated from God because the next thing they tried to do was hide from God. So they hid among the trees of the garden. Uh, God doesn't say he laughed at that, but of course he must have been. Oh, you think you can hide from me? But then he promised that the day would come in their lifetimes when he would separate the two parts of them, body and soul. And so we look at death and we need to see it as those three things. It's a separation, a separation of everything we are from everything we know and a separation from what we are from the other part of what we are. That will leave us in heaven, in Revelation chapter 5, under the altar saying, how long, O Lord? How long until we have the resurrection and our bodies are back with us? So that promise is there also. By his power, we are raised up to a new life and will be formally and fully raised up to that life. The resurrection was a pledge of God, of our resurrection. I raised him, I raised his human nature, I will raise yours. What do you understand by he, the words he ascended into heaven? In Romans chapter eight and verse 34, Who is it that condemns? Is it Christ? It is Christ who died and furthermore who is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. So what we understand by his ascending into heaven is he is now in the immediate presence of the Father. Why? Well, if the Father is the King uh, and uh, the the son is the son of the king and probably the prime minister, the right-hand man. Then the son is there in the father's presence and he can say to the father, this is what we should be doing. And he can say to the father, uh, here is someone coming for judgment. And uh, in this book that you gave me, the book of life, uh, it says that I died for him so that his sin is already forgiven. If his sin is already forgiven, there's no condemnation. Therefore, he goes into our presence for the rest of existence. So he becomes our mediator. He's in the, in the presence of God in order that he might remind God about what has been done for us uh, by him and by the work of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So he who is judging there will be judging in that final judgment. But now he's there so that we could be in his presence, even if it's under the altar, desiring to have our bodies with our souls. But he's there making that intercession for us and upholding us. That's his work. But isn't Christ even with us even to the end of the world as he promised? Well... Of course, in Matthew 28, he made that promise. 
Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But in John chapter 14, beginning at verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Is that a promise for the future? Or is that what he means by the Holy Spirit, who is part of the triune God, just as the Son is part of the triune God, just as the Father is part of the triune God, and you can't cut them apart with scissors or anything else? I will be with you. The God who is will be with you, even to the end of the age. His human nature is not with us. It's in the presence of God. But because he's divine and because he is God, he is everywhere present. And everywhere means heaven and earth and even hell. He is everywhere present. So that he's at no point absent from us. Just because I can't touch his hand doesn't mean he isn't there because he's not like us. His human nature is, but he's more than a human nature. Are not in this way the two natures of Christ separated from one another? Well, according to Colossians 2.9, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In who? In the incarnate Christ dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So if the human nature is in heaven, then all of God is in heaven. All of his, all of God is in heaven. And if God is everywhere present, then all of God is present with us. So there's no separation at all. He's still together. We will be more together than we are now, but he's still together in the presence of God and in the upholding of his creation as he does according to Hebrews 1 and verse 3. So we come. The natures of Christ and what he does for us. What he did, what he continues to do. He does not forsake us. He does not leave us alone. But he is united to us because he has taken us to himself. <laughs>